You're listening to Notes from Norwich. So, uh, here we are with episode number 12 of Notes from Norwich. Where we left off at the end of episode 11, uh, Jesus was giving Julian and us this litany, it is I, it is I, it is I, it is I. And now we're turning to sin. So this is going to be a great episode because sin is always fun. I mean, to contemplate and talk about. So my name's Chris. I am one of the three hosts of this here little humble podcast. And I'm here with the other two who are. I'm Jayan. I'm Marguerite. How are you two? Doing well. We just got back from a cabin camp trip uh, in South Dakota. So it was a. Lovely so time. That's that's why we didn't have an episode yes. last week. Yeah, that's why there was no episode last week. We were yeah. uh, driving last Tuesday. So, and is it it's hot where you are as well? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah here in Wisconsin as well. It's like ninety four today or something like that. Yeah. <sighs> Fun. But, it was you know, nice up in the Black Hills, though. Mid to, but, mid to high 70s. Isn't it beautiful there? <laughs> it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Did you get to Deadwood? We did get to... Well, we drove through Deadwood. Hmm. We did not spend any time in Deadwood. That's It's a wonderfully kitschy place. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have shootouts in the main street every hour on the hour or something like that. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to milk the Wild West thing. Yeah. Um, there's no Wild West in Julian's Revelations of Divine Love. That's my awkward segue into <laughs> chapters 27 and 28 of the Revelations. Where do we begin? Nothing stood in my way except sin. Yeah, exactly. She had a yearning for God, and she saw that nothing stood in her way except sin. And so I guess really what the question is, is does sin stand in our way? What is sin? Well, she answers that um, a little later on in this unadorned word, sin, which just pausing, that phrase is beautiful to me, this unadorned word, sin. Anyway, she goes on, our Lord brought to my mind generally all that is not good, all this shameful despising and the uttermost tribulation that he bore for us in this life and his dying and all the pains and sufferings of all his created things spiritually and bodily. And what strikes me is that in that, in that kind of catalog of what, con- what sin consists of, suffering seems way more in the fore than in any other kind of schema of sin that I've like, encountered or worked with. Like, I, I wrote down, like, is there a, in the margin, is there a difference between sin and suffering? Because and, and I think she does kind of nuance the distinction later, but I'm just struck by how much of the sort of meaning content that sin has for Julian has to do with suffering. Um, it is, I, I don't think she would reject the kind of forensic ideas of sin outright, but she that's definitely not where her emphasis is. What What do you mean by the forensic definition? I mean, the sort of um, the, the legal, I, I don't want to use the word legalistic because that has other connotations, but this, this idea of sin as a quasi legal guilt um, that is tied with um, theories of the atonement that, uh, have to do with, uh, like we have incurred a, uh, our, our, our sins have kind of built up as a, a rap sheet of, 
ways that we have broken the law. Um, and that is in many Western contexts, the, the default mode of talking about sin, um, Mm -hmm. that I have encountered. Uh, and it has its utility in certain areas. Sure. Um, and I don't think Julian would refute it necessarily because at the end of chapter 28, she does talk about blame that being done away with, like she doesn't reject the idea that there is blameworthiness, but her, the way she talks about sin focuses so much more on the suffering sickness than it does on sort of a heavenly courtroom. So somehow it's likely to involve both. Yeah, I think sort of violation of God's will, whatever that means, and also suffering woundedness. What comes first? Does the suffering cause the separation from God or does the separation from God or the perception of separation from God cause the suffering? Or is it impossible to, to play the, you know, chicken and egg game because we're just immersed in it. Just like it is with the chicken and egg thing, right? Like we live in a world in which chickens and eggs have always been. So we don't know how to answer that. If we live in a world where suffering separates us from God and separation from God causes suffering, we can't tell which came first. I think she does tip towards the, the sin leading to the suffering. She, she, she describes that, that sin cannot be known except by the pain that is caused by it. But that that's only like slightly tipping her hand in my read. Like it, I think it is very much this kind of the sin and the suffering are tied up together like the chicken and the egg. Like in in our lives, they are so bound up together that trying to do a causal, like one way causal um, inference is just not productive Mm -hmm. in the schema that she seems to be presenting. What she's asking is this question that I hear all the time is why did God allow there to be sin? when sin is what separates us from God, sin is what causes this suffering. Why did God let sin occur when God could have so easily just forbidden it and everything would be smooth as silk? So what is the reason that God allowed sin to occur? And people ask this, all the time. They ask it seriously. They ask it jokingly. They ask it casually. They ask it with pain in their hearts. They ask it, they they pose it as a, you know, this is an argument for why there is no God because there's sin in the world. There's evil. And obviously that means, so, so for her to ask this question, and then later on, she says something like she feels that she was really silly to ask the question. Mm-hmm. But um, she gets an answer. And it's a heck of an answer, I have to say. You know, because, because basically what God tells her, what Jesus says to her is that sin is inevitable. And in earlier versions, in earlier translations, um, it is said the translation is sin is behovely. And those are two different words, and they overlap a little bit, but I think either word works. Behovely meaning basically um, useful or um, suitable or just a natural outcome of things or even necessary, 
Whereas inevitable is sort of like a grudging acceptance of something, you know, like it's, in, it's inevitable that you didn't like the birthday cake I made for you or something, you know, because you're such a grouch. Um, so, so I don't know, but anyway, that sin is, sin is like part of the plot mm-hmm. of our existence, part of the plot of our life. And and of course, and then and then he goes on to say, but everything all will be well and all will be well and every last single thing will be well. So I just, I wonder how she heard that. I mean, I wonder how, how that, if that was a shock to her or if that just felt natural to her. But in any case, there it is um, in the unadorned word sin. So if sin is inevitable, then so is our suffering inevitable. And it all kind of plays into our salvation story of creation, fall, incarnation, redemption, spirit, boom. Felix culpa, in other words. Happy fault. But it's extraordinary that she says that, you know, that, that, that God, I'm trying to find it here. That, that, well, I can't find it, but basically that God rejoices in it and that we should rejoice in it. Yeah. And that, of course, well, that, of course, is... A bizarre thing to say too. <sighs> I I'm struck by the, her uh, the way she talks about this question, this wondering, this theodicy, this question of how God allows evil as foolish. Like she at the beginning of chapter twenty-seven. Thus, in my folly before this time, I often wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God the beginning of sin was not prevented. And then later I ought much to have given up this disturbing wondering. Um, and so I, I, I almost picture this kind of encounter being uh, like Julian insisting on this question. Why is there, why is there evil? Why was sin allowed? Um, Jesus showing sin is behovely you silly goose. <laughs> like here, here is the role it plays. And um, Julian be like, Oh, okay. I get it. That That's how I imagine. Like I, 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 this, this first instance of the all shall be well, Jesus saying sin is behovely, sin is inevitable, but all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, which is the most iconic um, Julian quote. Um, I imagine his tone being a sort of um, gentle amusement almost that uh she, he's helping her see the big picture. Um, we're, we're told later that they are said tenderly. Yeah. But I imagine with a little, a, a little bemusement, it's probably not the yeah. first time that Jesus has had to explain. Exactly. This to- <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing him with a, a twinkle in his eye as he said it. Yeah. Well, and we've I, all wondered, right? Why yeah. is there suffering in the world? It is, I think, a, a, a pretty natural um, thing to wonder when we encounter suffering. So before you discovered Julian and her revelation, uh, Jesus's revelation to her, which she has shared with us, how did you answer that before? I gave up on answering it. Hmm. I... I was racked by that question 
a lot, especially um, the period after I left my parents' house, I was homeless for a while. And um, that question just kind of ate away at me. Like, how could all this gesturing wildly at the world, how could all this be allowed? Um, and I didn't have the kind of, uh, the, the, the extraordinary revelation that Julian had, and I didn't have, um, access or spiritual guidance that would have gotten me to reading Julian. Um, but I had to eventually admit that this is not a puzzle that can be solved by us. Um, I tried bargaining with God. I tried understanding through theological, through uh, philosophical arguments, but it, none of it, none of those are ever satisfying to us in our pain which I think uh, is the most damning proof of their incompleteness. Um, because if they were, if these, if these expositions on the problem of evil were complete or sufficient, they should at least sometimes bring us comfort. Um, but I, n I never found comfort in any of these kind of erudite dissections of why evil exists, um, which, which has led me to, I mean, led me before my return to the church even to like, there's a verse in the Psalms. I, I want to say it's, like Psalm 145 or something um, about in, about inquiring into matters too deep or too great for us. Um, and that resonates with where the, the point that I got to with this question, like this is, this is a fundamental uncertainty that we have as humans as to why evil was allowed, but it's, also not something that we can puzzle out um and it's in that realization that we can't puzzle it out that i think we are driven to seek god psalm 131 131 okay oh lord my heart is not lifted up my eyes are not raised too high i do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. That's actually not a very good translation. That's the NRSV of it. That's not great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What's the the one in the prayer book? Is like I I rest upon like like yeah. a child resting on its mother's breast, and it's just such a tender image. Anyway, Psalm one thirty one. Check it out. <laughs> But it's that kind of, um, you, you, I, I hit, I should use I statements. <laughs> I hit a point where I could not figure out even, even an avenue to approach the problem from a to a satisfactory degree. And so you have, I had to kind of say, okay. This is a problem because it, it, it is a problem. It is, it is a painful question. Why is there evil? And I, I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think Julian, even in describing the wondering as folly denies the, 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 the depth of the pain that goes into asking that. Um, but so, but I had I had to get to a point where I could hold that question, and say, "This is a problem. This hurts to think about." And I 
cannot figure this out. So I have to put this my uh put this in a box. My my first sponsor in AA was an atheist or agnostic, but described his higher power as a box that he could put things in that would hold hold his troubles for him when he was unable to. Um and that's still sometimes a, an image that I find helpful is like setting it aside, handing it over to God to hold. Um, and it's that, I think when we, when we get to that point of admitting, <laughs> admitting defeat, admitting that we, we cannot um, work this problem out. Um, that's, that's what starts to drive us to God in an, in an earnest way. Even, even if we don't believe in God, when we hit that point, that realization, this is a fundamental problem that I can't solve. Um, and that I need to kind of hand over to be held for me. That realization, even if we don't have a relationship with God at the moment, turns us upward. How about you, Marguerite? How did you wrestle with having, I mean, as I've mentioned before, having grown up Roman Catholic, um, the answer of course was very easy. The answer was the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden an original sin. And that bringing all the evil and sin and pain and suffering into the world. And of course it doesn't get distributed evenly uh, in terms of, you know, the worst sinners having then the worst suffering supposedly. Um, <clears throat> and innocent people are good people not, but the thing is there were just, all very, very easy answers and just brushing things like that aside. And so I don't think I ever seriously questioned why there was evil or sin in the world. And I, I, I might be the only person on this planet who hasn't done it, but it just seems it seemed at the time to me that my main thing was to give the right answer in religion class, which of course I always did. And then after that, to just know that, that wherever there was pain and suffering, there was grace being earned by that person somehow or another in the whole you know, economics of it. And that, again, you know, again, economically, that it would, that it would work out, that the grace that was earned through suffering by anyone in a large amount or a small amount, whether they were, um, even, even whether they were, whether they were faithful people or not, it would it would pour grace into the world to balance out the evil so that by the time everything ended there it would be it would be balanced it would be even steven and i you know i look at that as sort of a naive conception of things but i don't see it as being all that different from what Julian is saying now in that in that the suffering that happens in the world is just a way of our our growing toward God Yeah, I can definitely see resonances there, though um, what what you have described sounds uh, almost crudely economic. 
and transactional. Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. Um, totally transactional. Yeah. I mean, you know, balance sheet, the whole thing. Yeah. But I, I agree that there is, there is a, a resonance with the role Julian sees sin playing in our yeah. lives. This, this purification is being the shaken. To me, I've come at the problem of uh, evil and sin by, um, I mean, by wrestling with it long before I became a Christian. So I sort of arrived at Christianity having taken for granted the existence of evil and the persistence of wickedness in human hearts. Um, that bit I figured out first. <laughs> <laughs> and then I tried to figure out which religion had the best answer to it. And I tried a bunch of them. And Christianity felt the most satisfying to me in the end because it was honest about the ugliness of humanity, of human behavior and human um, tendencies and actions. Um but also had some hopeful story to it. So I started with the existence of evil and so I kind of put that in one cloud on the whiteboard and then I kept, you know, as I became more and more Christian as I was coming into it all through my twenties, um, I was really captivated by the centrality of the cross and that seemed so confusing to me. It took me a while to figure out why the cross was such a big deal. Um, I took for granted that for Christians, it was a big deal. I just couldn't figure out what was such a big deal about it because there seemed like I seemed to, you know, Christians seem to make more of a big deal about the cross than I thought I could understand it first. So I kept like allowing myself to be curious about it and saying, what does the cross have to do with all this? So that was the second cloud up on the whiteboard. And then the third cloud was this kind of, you know, what, what does God want for us? Well, God is love and God wants to transform us into somehow being more like God. You know, St. Paul says, that we should be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said to myself and to the priest, I was annoying with my questions early on, what does that even mean? So somehow I figured that, um, that the existence of suffering must have something to do with the transformation into love that God wants us to be heading towards. So, you know, I mean, it's a mystery that I've sat with kind of, and I, I think I see it clearer now than I used to, but my, my starting point with all of this is that somehow suffering and sin, sin and its suffering are just side effects of the freedom that allows us to love. Like if we're supposed to be people who are being perfected in love then we have to have a certain amount of freedom in order to love properly because love can't be compulsory, right? You can't force love out of somebody. It has to be freely given. So if you're going to free, if God is going to free humanity enough to love as God loves, then inevitably we have to be free to make all sorts of other uh, choices or, or to, love other things other than God and um, to get us to get ourselves into trouble. <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, if, if, if we want love, which we do, then sin and suffering are the side effect of that. The, I guess the Jungian shadow side of love. Or we could 
lit, we could theoretically have a world in which there was no sin and no suffering, but there also wouldn't be able to be any love in that. We would just be like, um, I don't know, senseless rocks or something like that. We'd be, <laughs> we'd be clouds, um, that can't sense the world around them, I guess. I don't know. Well, since you mentioned the Jungian shadow, what about um, Julian saying, but I saw not sin, for I believe it has no manner of essence, nor any portion of being, nor can it be known except by the pain that is caused by it. So she's saying that sin doesn't have its own reality. Hmm. And that that is one statement of hers through which some people dismiss Julian as being naive or sweet or or even more naive than than that. Isn't it thoroughly Augustinian though? Like isn't that that's like it is that's that's pretty on point with Augustine's kind of notion of sin as privation, of sin as lack of the good, mm-hmm. as not, not having substance in itself. And Augustine sure as hell was not naive about sin. No, he wasn't, no. Huh, okay. Okay. So, no, I, I, I definitely see, I have seen what you're describing, people writing her off because of that. But she seems thoroughly in step with Augustine on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, which is at Augustine is, I mean, he's not naive about sin and its consequences, but also is firmly committed to not having this dualism where evil and darkness has a competing substance with God's substance. Right. Um, and I, I think Augustine gets to that point, I think, because of his autobiography, the way that he travels through Manichaeism and mm-hmm. kind of wrestles with Platonism. Um, but he, for him, I, I, I see it as a, as a commitment to monotheism, a commitment to God being the source of all being mm-hmm. um, and denying any uh, competing existence to sin. And so trying to understand sin in that light and you come to having, you come to it having no actual essence in itself. Um, So I I see Julian as being very Augustinian there, um, which I just want to like wave in the face of anybody who tries to write her off because of this. Because she doesn't. What was that? That's a good thing to do. Wave wave Augustine in the face of anyone who says things wrong. Because and I, I, but I think Augustine shows us how um, is is a perhaps more readily credible example, so to speak, in the eyes of many. um, Example of how you can have this notion of sin not having its own substance and still take sin very seriously mm-hmm. still take sin and its consequences very seriously um and kind of provides us a mirror through which to read julian like julian's not writing off sin as unimportant she's not writing it off as something that has no effect or is ultimately unimportant she she grapples with sin she grapples with suffering um, but like Augustine roots that grappling in an understanding that sin cannot win because there is no substance to win. There exactly. is no substance to sin for it with which it could defeat God and good. Um, and that's what grounds her grappling. Yeah, I agree. Here's, here's a portion of Augustine's Enchiridion, his like his entry level, um, like his intro to Christian theology. 
for the Almighty God, who, as even the heathen acknowledge, has supreme power over all things, being himself supremely good, would never permit the existence of anything evil among his works, if he were not so omnipotent and good that he can bring even out of evil. For what is that which we call evil but the absence of good? In the bodies of animals, disease and wounds mean nothing but the absence of health. For when a cure is effected, that does not mean that the evils which were present, namely the diseases and wounds, go away from the body and dwell elsewhere. They altogether cease to exist. For the wound or disease is not a substance, but a defect in the fleshly substance, the flesh itself being a substance and therefore something good, of which those evils, that is, privations of the good which we call health, are accidents. Just in the same way, what are called vices in the soul are nothing but privations of natural good, and when they are cured, they are not transferred elsewhere. When they cease to exist in the healthy soul, they cannot exist anywhere else. So, there you go. Love it. Augustine. So, I think, and that's a very important point, the idea that, that, um, that, you know, I have this little wound on my arm right now that I got from the work I've been doing on the railings outside. When that heals up, it's not as though that wound goes off to live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It, it is altogether gone. And right now, the only thing is that there's this defect, this privation of the created perfection of my own arm, I suppose. <laughs> um, but and so... Uh, that sounds thoroughly Augustinian, uh, what Julian is saying, um, that there is, that sin has no manner of essence nor any portion of being, nor can it be known except by the pain that is caused by it. So it can only be perceived by its impact on other sensing creatures. Like you can't point at any, any, thing in creation and say that is that's where sin is right now sin is a a, or evil are temporary characteristics of other parts of creation yeah the, the the pain that sin causes is something for a time she grants it some level of existence um but not of substance it it, it serves a purpose, though. It, it purges and forces us to know ourselves and to ask for mercy. And this is where that, that the function that sin plays in the divine drama, the, the, what makes it behovely, um, is its purgative power. Um, that this, uh, the sin, the sin causes this pain, which then drives us to God. Which I think, um, as I'm thinking about how I answered your your question, Chris, of how I've approached the problem of evil, this wrestling with the problem, ultimately leading to acknowledging our limits and forcing us to turn our gaze to God, like that. That I think is to some extent what Julian sees sin as doing. Like that's that's the point for her. It is to, to, to purge us, to help us to know the limits of our uh, humanity and to point us to God. Well, we're in our narrative and all narratives have a beginning and a middle and an end. And for me, from God's point of view, our narrative is just all one one thing. It's not like cause and effect is something that we that we see and we perceive in our in our slow, you know, moment by moment kind of uh going through life. But the bigger narrative in which in which sin is the you know has a has a is a plot point is certainly um, 
is certainly real because because God made it because God is in charge of it. Sin is not real, but we are real and God is real. And you know, as as Augustine points out, evil is just going to evil is just going to going to go away. It's going to vanish. And what will be left is what is what we really are, is is our own true as people like to talk about the true self, which is not a term I'm particularly happy with. And I don't usually see it as the way that most people describe it, but but the actual self that we are is what will be left at the end of things. So, we have at the beginning of chapter 27, Julian's observation that nothing stands in her way except sin. And so, with the rest of us as well, the only thing keeping us from the Lord is sin. And then she says, midway through the chapter, this reflection that sin is suffering all that is not good. And then towards the end, she has this line, then it would be a great unkindness to blame God for my sin, seeing he does not blame me for sin. So, does Julian completely detach sin from guilt? If I... I if I do things that are sinful, does that mean I'm not actually guilty of them after all? And I don't need to confess anything? I don't think so. And I say that because of the way she ends chapter 28. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so I'll just, I'll just read her, her last paragraph. And the careful awareness to this intention of his saves us from grumbling and despair when we experience our own pains. This being the whole, the whole ex- like exposition on sin. As long as we truly, as long as we see truly that our sin deserves it, the pain, yet his love excuses us and of his great graciousness, he does away with all our blame and looks upon us with mercy and pity as children, innocent and not loathsome. What I what I get from that those sentences is that for God to do away with the blame, the blame has to be there. Like there 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 is guilt in her um, in her picture. Um, so I, I and I mean she, she she is a good Catholic Christian. She made confession. She um, so I think she is not in this intending to erase the concept of blame, but just to kind of shift our focus, like kind of adjust the focus on the lens so that we're looking at the big picture, the the, the grand narrative, rather than at the individual cause and effect of action, blame, pain, um, the kind of the granular picture. Um, I, but I don't, I don't think her saying that God does not blame us for our sin is meant to kind of excise any, any problem of guilt or um, our agency in sin or anything. I think, I think her move here is really just adjusting our focus. Yes, I I agree with that. If we didn't feel the effects of our sin, sin wouldn't be doing its job. Sin wouldn't be wouldn't be correcting us. It's that it's that fall and contrition and repentance and renewal of oneness with God that is what we're doing here. That's our work. And so 
and and so that's what that's what has to happen it's so i on this trip i was able to make confession for the first time since covid began mm-hmm. and um which was thank god that was an opportunity i had um but at the end of the book of common prayers order for confession the priest says the lord has put away all your sins and and i that i think is akin to what julian is doing here that like yeah yeah the sin the sins are real the the fault is real um and we are we are called to examine ourselves and see that fault and confess that fault but the fault doesn't stick around the whole point of this is is the examination the confession and the the heightening of our relationship with god god it it serves a purpose to bring us closer to god and it it doesn't stick around the lord puts it away um that that's that's what i see her doing here that yeah okay fault is a thing we there there is grounds for us to be blamed but we are not blamed um we we are instead called to deeper relationship as we grapple as we stumble and rise again or are raised up again right because god's god knows how it's all going to end yeah. Yeah. god that that is in god's view all the time 24/7 yes We'll get to it in later chapters, but Julian does dig uh, distinctly into that seeming paradox between our um, the fact that we are blameworthy, but we are not blamed. And I yes. had a, yes. a, a <clears throat> lengthy discussion with with uh, a parishioner at, at my last church about the general thanksgiving that exists it's at the end of both uh all of the uh forms of morning and evening prayer um the lengthy prayer but it begins we your unworthy servants and it then goes on and on and on to give thanks for a lot of stuff almighty god father of all mercies we your unworthy servants give you humble thanks for this, that, and the other thing, including for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Um, and this parishioner of, parishioner of mine really was digging into that word unworthy. She wanted us to stop saying it because she said, I, I'm not unworthy. I don't feel unworthy. To which my first response was, well... Who cares how you feel? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, I thought that, but I didn't say it. But feelings, feelings are not theology. Um, but so we explored this, like this, this sense of unworthiness and the paradox. And I, I really tried to get it across as best I could. And I don't think I did a very good job. So I've chewed on it ever since how to convey the, paradox of our standing before the throne of the judge of the world and be simultaneously unworthy because of our own merits and completely worthy because of Christ's and how that's, that's the nature of the relationship that as long as, as long as I think that it's up to me, I'm I'm not making it. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to be good enough by myself. But because of the grace of Christ, I am. But those two have to go together. So I'm I'm um if I have any worthiness in me at all, it's because I willingly receive the free gift of it from from Christ. But it's it's this uh, this apparent paradox, and I think it's the same sort of paradox that Julian is talking about. The um, that, and 
again, we'll see it in unfold in, in, in chapters to come. The seeming paradox between being um, rightly blamed for the sin that we do, but also not being blamed for it. That God could justifiably hold it against us, and yet God doesn't. But that doesn't mean that it's not important, and that it doesn't matter, and that it's not serious. It's what Luther takes up in terms of, like, simul justus et peccator, or um, in his more colorful analogy of snow coverage, um, that, that we, on our own merits, are refuse, and then get covered in the snow of Christ. No, I, th- I, I think it's important to go beyond that and say that then the call is to, as, as our oblate rule says, become as like to God in character as we are in nature. That the, the call is to divinization. Um, but he, he hits on that idea of being simultaneously unworthy in our own merits. And yet, uh, how does she phrase it? Um, God lays upon us something that is no defect from his point of view. The, 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 this idea of being having something laid upon us, um, which then we, I, I think we are supposed to, to metabolize and grow into. Um, different ways of tackling the same paradox of our unworthy, our, we have no intrinsic worthiness. Um, but we are made worthy. Well, I think we do have an intrinsic worthiness in, in, insofar as our creation, mm-hmm. but then we have an extrinsic unworthiness because Ooh. of our actions, mm-hmm. but then we also have an extrinsic worthiness because of Christ's action on us on the cross. Yeah. So it is very complicated, and I have heard many, many people complain about the word unworthy. Um, I know that I personally miss the prayer of humble access, which says we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs. And then, of course, in the general uh, general Thanksgiving, we are unworthy servants. I don't mind calling myself unworthy. I don't think that that insults Jesus at all or belittles his work um, in his ministry and on the cross of raising me up in grace. Um, but yes, Chris, you know, if we think that it's up to us, we're done for. I mean, we're just bloody done for because it's not. I mean, we can't, we can do nothing, nothing at all. Not even one tiny little thing. For our salvation. Thus I saw how Christ has compassion for us because of sin. It's a great way to begin a chapter. So not only does sin provoke us to correction, to awareness of what we need to become aware of to ask for mercy, to purge us. But, uh, it's also a cause for, um, Christ's compassion as though Christ needed any reason to, to have compassion. But, um, maybe the, the shape of his, 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 his compassion takes shape the way a lump of clay gets molded into a, pot or something, but it's the sin in us draws out his, his loving kindness. She uses this image um, of shaking a cloth in the wind to describe that, uh, 
that though Christ full well loves the people that shall be saved, the church is still shaken in sorrows and anguish and tribulation, like a cloth has shaken in the wind. And what, what comes to mind visually for me is somebody beating out a rug um, and beating the dust out um, so that the rug is restored to its full vibrance. Um, you, you, see, you see the beautiful colors of the rug. Um, and that, uh, that image for understanding sin and its effect on us is powerful and beautiful and also, I think, it, it helps it, seeing the church as that cloth that is being beaten out helps it not feel isolating to, to be going through this purgative process. Um, I, I, I don't know if this was what she had in mind as she built the architecture of this sentence, but to, for her to talk about having compassion for all her fellow Christians and then to talk about being kind of shaken out like a piece of cloth, um, is a remind a helpful reminder for me that I am not undergoing this suffering and purgation on my own. I, I am undergoing this process as part of Holy church with all of God's servants, um, which I think helps me with what, what, what is one of the more painful aspects of this question of evil um, which is when it becomes, why me? Why does evil happen to me? Um, and being reminded that this, ha- this is happening to Holy Church, it's not just me. Um, it's it, once again, showing us the big picture. Once again, like kind of adjusting the focus on our lens so that we, we see what God is up to. Um, which is where we can find hope um, rather than struggling with this unsolvable puzzle about why me, why me. Um, it reminds us, and it, it actually harkens back to um, the image of Jesus on the cross being blown around in the wind because of being so dried out. And that's in chapter 17, um, if anyone wants to look, it, the thing that struck me about it is calling, talking about the church undergoing this and then talking, you know, referring back to, to Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross being the church, being the, you know, if that's where the, that's where the church started up as it were. And, um, So the the torment that the church goes through, and yes, it is all of us, it is all of us, but the church in her time, and she, Julian is, she is studiously untopical about the things that she talks about. I mean, nobody in this world of ours today could possibly skirt around the things that are happening politically and and socially and and ecclesiastically i mean it would it would take it would take some monumental self control which i certainly wouldn't have but the church of her day was having a lot of trouble i mean there were like a couple of popes and um her own bishop took part in or led a a terrible crusade and and then the the Lollards were starting up, and the first hints of um, Protestantism 
uh, Reformation. So, I mean, there was just a lot going on that I'm sure she was, she had to have been aware of because people talk and, and she's just, she's very, um, she's very sly about refer if she is in fact referring to it. I mean, there's always plenty of things to say, Oh, the church is, you know, suffering and it's going to all come together because of individuals. But um, that is another, you know, that, that is another thing about it. Um, And she says, and regarding this, our Lord answered in this manner, a great thing I shall make out of this in heaven of endless honors and everlasting joys. Yea, so much that our Lord rejoices in the tribulations of his servants with pity and compassion and upon each person whom he loves in order to bring them to his bliss. He lays upon them something that is no defect from his point of view, whereby they are disparaged and despised in this world, scorned and mocked and cast out. This he does in order to prevent the harm that they would receive from pomp and pride, etc., etc. So, so is sin and suffering an inevitable side effect of the growth that we all have to go through to become who God has created us to be? I think so. I mean, I think you were you were on the money there when you you described it as a, a side effect of being granted the capacity to love as God loves. Um, I, I, I don't think we can have one without the other. Um, which is not to say like that, that, that at, the, at the eschatological point of view, we will not be without sin. But that is through a process of conversion. Um, it is, it's sin sin had to emerge of course from the the freedom we have been given to love and because sin has no substance it has to be purged away of course as god's salvation unfolds And that's why we rejoice. Hooray! So, any last thoughts about chapter twenty-eight? We're we're drawing near to to our time. She uses this phrase in the paragraph I read earlier: this careful awareness to this intention of his. Um, and this is something. This read through, I've been. Uh, triple underlining instances where she talks about carefulness and diligence. Um, but this, uh, I, I don't, what I get from that phrase is that she, she is under no pretense that this revelation will be a one and done. Oh, the problem of evil is solved. I like got that box checked off. I can put that away. Um, what I, what I see in that little phrase is a hint of the ongoing unfolding of this awareness that I, that I see, like I can, I can picture her as she says, careful awareness to this intention of his, his spending 15, 20 years reflecting on the showing and that, 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 that conversion of her life happens gradually through careful, careful attention through diligent reflection um, that she, she presents this, this kind of unpacking of the problem of evil in two chapters. But in that, in that last bit gives me a hint of the years over which that unfolded, which is a great comfort to me and a great challenge, but mostly a great comfort. It makes me want to wall myself up in a room, too. <laughs> Are we done for today, friends? I think so. For this week? I think so. All right. 
all shall be well. Uh, I'll have to go back and bleep out that. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> that very strong language. <laughs> so we want to keep the clean rating. Sorry. That's okay. Blame Luther. Yeah. Luther. Ooh. Martin Martin Luther's. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, all right. I don't count that. Okay. I was just <laughs> quoting him. The man said it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, once you go into Luther, you're. you're oh, I know. <laughs> I'm not sure Apple Podcasts will take it that way. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.